Welcome to the Digital Transformation Podcast. Interviews with best-selling authors, innovative thought leaders, and top-shelf executives all driving today's digital success. This is the show that will help you take advantage of digital transformation to build your business and career. I'm your host, Kevin Crane, and I'm so pleased that you're listening. And I'm so pleased to welcome Bill Shanninger to the program. Bill is a senior partner at McKinsey and a global leader of their organization practice. He's here to talk about his book, co-authored with Scott Keller, Beyond Performance 2.0, A Proven Approach to Leading Large-Scale Change. The urgency of why large-scale change has to be a central component of effective leadership was made clear in their 2011 bestseller, Beyond Performance, now in Beyond Performance 2.0, Shanninger and Keller tell us how. They're a framework to empower any leader to make large-scale change happen. But first, you can find me and keep in touch with the show at digitaltransformationpodcast.net. Listen to the interview archive and subscribe. That way, you'll never miss an episode. It's all there at digitaltransformationpodcast.net. And do you want to be a guest on the show? It could happen. Find out more at digitaltransformationpodcast.net slash guest. Now, on to the interview. We often take great care in evaluating and planning the change and implementation of technology, but the impacts to change on people is also fraught with a lot of risk and difficulties, yet often overlooked. Why is that? I think one of the real challenges that leaders face is on the surface. They think that this ought to be really simple. And, you know, it ought to be as simple as they articulate, you know, their grand plan about where they'd like the organization to go or a big target. And surely everyone will know exactly what they mean. And they'll know about the pace at which they want to get there. They'll know what they should do to get there, what they have to change to get there, and who they have to work with to get there. And uh, as we know, it very, very rarely works out that way. Like the success rate of large-scale change efforts, you know, it's often been quoted around 30%. That number is actually going down over time. It was around 30% in the early 90s. By our accounts and others, it looks like it's down probably in the mid-20s, if not a little lower if a large-scale restructuring is involved. Mid-20s. So what's wrong with most approaches to change management today that is causing that rather low success rate? In our experience, and you know, we've, we've been studying this since the early, the early 2000s, um, like 2001, 2002, primarily coming off the back of, uh, you know, the dot-com bust, which showed us a lot of organizations that were called excellent that either ceased to exist, were so damaged that they were bought, right, or just generally didn't live up to the hype. And we started about looking at that and saying, well, why do some companies seem to do really well and continue to do really well, and some end up looking more like flashes in the pan or not really being able to change and keep up. And the essence of the Delta was this. The companies that did well and continue to do well, they did focus on performance, of course, but they also focused on how they delivered that performance. Or in our language, what we'd say is performance and health. Think about how we make money and how we run the place. The ones that tended to be flashes in the pans or really struggled were myopically focused on performance, particularly quarterly results. And when you see organizations do that, you will often see it with reliability incidents or safety incidents or data breach incidents or, you know, customer uh, loyalty problems. These are places that take an almost end-all, be-all to hitting the number as opposed to how they hit the number. And that for us is probably, you know, one of a few big insights, which is the way this really works is that leaders 
have to bring equal rigor, time, and attention to both performance as well as health. Now, Bill, your book is Beyond Performance 2.0, and it came out originally in 2011, became a bestseller. What has changed in 2.0? What's changed since 2011 when the book first came out? Well, thanks for asking, right? Because I think many people just assume that it's a, um, you know, a reboot and time to, you know, make some money off the uh, second edition. Um, in our case, we felt a pretty compelling need to pivot a bit from the, the first book. So, you know, whereas many uh, second editions are maybe 20, 25% new material, we think this is probably more on the order of 75%. The first book focused at great length on this idea that health and healthy organizations really gave you an enduring uh, competitive advantage. Then we spent the time since the book came out engaging thousands of leaders on that topic and how they make their organizations uh, higher performing and healthier. And that's where we got the feedback from the clients saying, hey, we love the health stuff and we really buy into it when I do it, but it's the change part. It's the change in the organization to make it healthier. That is actually the problem. You know, even when intellectually we get it or we get our colleagues to get it, the health part. Changing the organization is really hard. And so we found ourselves increasingly spending time on well, what works and what is the best way right, to really drive change to make the organization healthier. Because, you know, the math on this is straightforward. I mean, healthier, healthier organizations outperform non-healthy organizations by a factor of three. So when you look at that and go, hmm, okay, the headline there is, and by the way, when we say health, we really mean how you run the place. So the headline is people that run the place better make more money. And that, of course, seems like Captain Obvious uh, just walked in the room and dropped that wisdom. <laughs> but you would be surprised at the number of leaders who, in their day in and day out, even if they pay lip service to that idea, don't really spend any of their time on the health part. So that was one. And then the second part was, well, what, what do they have to do to change? And we just kept on running into you know, study after study, data after data, showing that most organizations fail miserably when attempting to do a large-scale change. And we were seeing a different kind of result in our clients who were following our approach. And we thought, well, maybe we should open this up and do a far more expansive look. And we did that. And we came back with some results that looked like if you follow this approach and you work your way through it with real rigor and real stick to you're going to more than double your odds and go from, you know, mid-20s to up nearly 80% of a likelihood of success. That to us felt like a call to action that we needed to update the book and tilt its emphasis slightly to be change management uh, focused more than just straight organizational health. Is it time to reach a new audience in a new way? Advertising on the Digital Transformation Podcast gives you the opportunity to do just that. Each week you'll reach thousands of listeners all tuned in to learn about strategies, products, and approaches that will help them succeed. Be a sponsor and get your message heard by the right audience. Learn more at digitaltransformationpodcast.net slash sponsor. That's digitaltransformationpodcast.net slash sponsor. I'm speaking with Bill Shaniger. He is a senior partner at McKinsey and the co-author, along with Scott Keller, of the new book, Beyond Performance 2.0, A Proven Approach to Leading Large-Scale Change. Now, Bill, what is that approach? How do I do it? What is the recommendation that you have for organizations that are looking to affect change? Many books or articles or journal articles, when you see about change, they'll break into a couple different types. Some are content-based, which is just do these five things. And it's more of a checklist, you know, a content approach. Others will be context-specific, 
is, you know, context in the time of a turnaround or context in the form of a merger. And, you know, this is what you do. This is slightly different. This is a process. It is a, it is a prescription saying that there is an order that matters here. And we recommend you do these things, but in this particular order. So in our case, and I'll use, you know, plain spoken language, we say manage for both performance and health. And that just means pay attention to how you're going to make money as well as how you're going to run the place. But the steps that you follow, five steps, we call them five frames. Um, we used alliteration because we thought using large capital A's was snappy, but it follows uh, this rough approach. One is to set an aspiration. It has two parts. The first part is set the goal and make it truly be aspirational and make sure it's big enough and bold enough and tapping into different sources of meaning for people. So it could be about profit. Could be about cost. Could be about how we serve our customers. Could be about impact in an institution. Institution, excuse me. Have a large, bold enough, gaudy enough goal that people are going, yeah, that's that's worth actually trying really hard for. And on the flip side, set an aspiration for health for what it's going to be like around here, the way we're going to run the place, the the cultural you know zenith, and why would you want to work here? And make that quite specific and quite granular. So that's the first part. The second part, and by the way, that tends to generate a whole lot of really good positive energy because people are excited. The second part then is to immediately follow and say, but now what's it really like? What's our real, no kidding, warts and all baseline? So that, that lays out a spire, which gives a sense of where do we really want to be and honestly, where are we at? And it gives you a sense of the distance. But it anchors on aspiration first. You know, many, many um, authors and and, you know, contemporary writers have led with what is discrepancy-based approach change, which is you start with the problem and you work back from there. The challenge with that, of course, is it requires the problem to be really big, generate enough energy to get people to take action. As soon as you make some headway against that problem and the threat of imminent death is removed, energy tends to wane. So we are explicitly focused on saying you lead with the aspiration first. Okay. So that regardless of how close you get to it, you still have a real real aspiration for the promised land. You know, in, in um, medicine, where they look at recidivism rates, let's say of heart patients, when you talk to patients about they need to change their behavior or they're going to die, recidivism rate is still actually pretty high. When you talk to them about in their future, the aspiration is somebody walking a child down the aisle, seeing a child graduate, you know, uh, going off with a spouse and, you know, renewing one's vows or something. Those things that tend to be more... Uh, positive and more, hey, look, this is what's possible in your future. The recidivism rate is dramatically lower. It's just the natural way that energy is formed and catalyzed and focused when you use an aspiration as opposed to a deficit. All right. Okay, so that's the first part, right? And now, once you have that, then it just says, well, let's be honest with ourselves about what do we have to do to bridge that gap? There's two parts. One is, you know, you're, so you're assessing the capabilities or the institutional capabilities that are necessary. This would say what roles are critical more than others. And what skill pools are necessary or institutional capabilities are necessary to pull this off. In particular, many organizations jump over this get the step and just assume that the people they have today who were doing the things that needed to be done yesterday are the same people that are going to do what you need done tomorrow. That is very rarely the case. Right? But there is just a leap that, well, of course, we can do it. So a more honest look at the skills that are required and where you stand on the possession of that skills matters quite a bit. That's actually kind of like the logical part, just having a look at what you can and cannot do with an institution. The more difficult part is in mindset, right? So why, and here's the question. Why would an otherwise well-intended person not do what usually seems pretty obvious in order to affect the change? Just think as an example, if you had an organization that wanted to be more innovative, 
They might say things like, you as a leader, we'd like you and your team to look outside for inspiration for companies that seem to be doing this already. And we'd like you to work with your colleagues who are doing things that are similar to make sure we're all lined up. And we'd like you to involve your direct reports who actually do this work to make sure that we really understand the nature of it and guarantee that it's uh, really going to be impactful. So if you play that back, what that says is look outside the organization, talk to the people you work with, and spend time working with the people who work for you. When you say it like that, that is truly a Captain Obvious moment. In fact, it might even be a little insulting, right, if you spend time on that. Yet, you will have a lot of organizations that don't do it. So the leader's challenge is not to become enraged by that, but to ask why would, why would otherwise well-intended people who spend a ton of time at work, why would they not do something that seems really obvious? And that mindset part we think is a pretty big deal. You know, rather than just shouting louder or assuming that people are trying to be obstinate, spend a little time really understanding the mindsets that are prevalent and would likely get in the way. So an approach to leading large-scale change, can you give us an example of one organization that has used a similar approach? And what can we learn from that example? I was working with um, you know, a basic materials organization in Southeast Asia. They were being they were part of a global dominant player. You know, they had some aging assets, they had some labor problems. You know, they had some safety problems. In general, it was an underperforming part of the portfolio. And so the global player had decided that they were too far removed, too far, too far flung, and they weren't worth it. So they were going to spin them out. So they probably had maybe 12 months to get it right, and that was going to be a spin and close or a spin and a fight on their own. And they had to make very meaningful gains on cost, on safety, on reliability, on uh, customer satisfaction. All of that at the same time is actually taking on a fair amount of debt because the, the assets they don't well, weren't paid off and they had some fines coming. So it seemed a bit like Mission Impossible. But the aspiration they had, and a CEO and a top team were really motivated to do it, was one of independence, one of making their own way, one of giving themselves a fighting chance and being free of bureaucracy and focusing on the things that only, you know, only they could do. And they also aspired to have something that was not already four rungs down the layer when you got the person who ran the organization and able to not have to just adopt best practice in air quotes that came from North America, you know, and saw themselves an opportunity to become a fixture in the communities. They were in some cases, the communities they operated in, they were the, you know, they were effectively the town mill. So in this case, they, they followed this, uh, you know, to the letter, you know, really laying out time for what's attractive, why it's attractive for the aspiration, how they intended to run the place, you know, what their, what their gap really was in terms of capabilities. In their case, there was no doubt a lot of this supporting and planning functions that had come from the center were absent. They needed to be stood up. And their field uh, line leaders really needed investing in. They hadn't had anything you know, other than I used to carry tools. Now I tell, my, now I tell my, uh, my buddies who carry tools what to do kind of thing. They followed these approaches that laid out, you know, set the aspiration, took an honest look at where they were, figured out the capabilities and mindsets that needed to shift. And then they really went in with real, real vigor on both changing performance on things like cost and cost per ton and reliability and safety, but also every time they undertook a new initiative, they did it in a way that emphasized their commitment to changing how the organization was run, whether it be involving frontline leaders more, whether it be more diligent about focusing on a few but incredibly important operational metrics, et cetera. And, you know, they got so much progress done in the first nine months that they were, they got an extension saying, hey, keep going, do it better. And at the 18-month mark, 
instead of spinning them out because they had been floating them and getting a price on it, the parent company decided to keep them and then take their operating model and regionalize the rest of the portfolio and ask them to adopt the same thing. Now, it did not yield the freedom part. They were going on their own, but it became the shining example that even within a large, somewhat bureaucratic legacy parent company, you could have these pockets of really uh, high-performing and healthy organizations. Do you want to be a guest on the Digital Transformation Podcast? Well, it could happen when you join our Knowledge Leadership Circle. Tell us about your ideas and advice. What technologies and solutions do you recommend? And how can our listeners benefit from your approach? Be a guest. Find out more at digitaltransformationpodcast.net slash guest. I've been speaking with Bill Shanninger. He is a senior partner at McKinsey and the co-author of Beyond Performance 2.0, A Proven Approach to Leading Large-Scale Change. Bill, it's been great speaking with you today. We're almost out of time, but before I let you go, one last question. You've given us some great advice here today, but what was the best piece of advice that you ever received, and how has it shaped who you are? I might come back to the idea of the mindsets really matter. I think many leaders, when they assert a target, and they see that the people who work for them or work with them are struggling to do it or don't appear to be doing it, they will often just assume they know why. The person's being difficult. They don't want to do it. They're being challenging. They have their own agenda. But we tend to make an attribution about why the person isn't doing what you want. And I remember, you know, long, long ago, I used to run a residential psychiatric treatment center. And my, my, uh, my manager said, you know, rather than guessing, why don't you just go ask? Because my guessing had gotten me rather angry and frustrated with the employee. <laughs> right. And boy, that is held true today. You know, if you really want to understand the mindsets that are getting in the way or wh why an otherwise well-intended person isn't doing what seemed obvious, rather than shouting louder, maybe go ask, maybe go work your way through, you know, do they have a, a concern about whether or not it's their job or their role or they'd be violating a norm or if they're feeling strapped with time and resources and or skills, or if they're actually just afraid, you know, they're afraid about how changed their, their influence, their legacy or their power, their reputation. Not only does it show humility on the leader's part, saying they don't know everything, but it also shows a willingness to work with the person as peers, right, to enroll them and to involve them in trying to uh, bring the change to life. And I would, I would say for any individual leader, start there. Don't assume you know. Know that mindsets matter and spend the time to understand it before you push ahead with the change. That's Bill Shanninger. Bill, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of the Digital Transformation Podcast. But join me next time when I continue to talk to best-selling authors, innovative thought leaders, and top-shelf executives, all driving today's digital success. And I'll talk to you next time on the Digital Transformation Podcast.